0: So, our second speaker, Brother Kerl Hammond, has the overall theme of the unique teachings of the truth and the particular subject this morning what do we mean by the truth? Brother Kerl. Thanks, Brother Chairman and brothers and sisters. It's a privilege to speak with you and meet with you today and for the coming week. As was announced, the subject title for our series is called the unique teachings of the truth, and today we're going to jump straight into the first talk, which is What do we mean by the truth? We need to define that first of all. As I said in the introduction on Saturday evening, we're going to start off um, reasonably slowly and and we'll develop over the series of the talks to more complex ideas. Today we really want to lay the foundations about what the truth is, both looking at it in two ways. One, what the scripture says about truth, and the other, what we as a community, as an ecclesia of the living God, what we stand for and what we should stand for. There is, uh, of course, great importance in understanding what the word says. And I really want to talk about that and what we receive as a heritage, I guess, from those who have gone before. So we'll jump straight into this because we've got quite a lot of slides. We want to really get these things underway. There are three basic questions we want to address, and they're down here on the slide here. What is the truth? We're going to focus on that today. Tomorrow, we're going to focus on this part here. Does it matter what we believe or do? um, Particularly in light of some of the challenges we face from different areas. And third, of course, the, the whole purpose of the truth. What effect should the truth have upon us? What impact should it have upon you and me and us as a community. So the general overview of our studies is as on the slide here. What do we mean by the truth, which is our study today? Um, Tomorrow, what are the core beliefs and does it really matter? We're going to touch on core beliefs today. And I think there are core beliefs mentioned in the scripture quite clearly. We're going to talk on um, the next study about the flesh and the spirit and in the fourth study, the spirit of God, how God works. And I believe this is an area where we, we, we're a little bit afraid sometimes to touch it. Well, I'm going to jump straight into it and we're going to really look at it um, fairly comprehensively. We're going to use some maps and some diagrams perhaps to explain the concepts more clearly so you're more comfortable with it. And in the, fourth, or the, sorry, the fifth, the final study, God's purpose is to dwell in and with us The whole purpose of God in creation, mentioned in the very first chapter of the book of Genesis, comes to its fruition when God's purpose is complete in us and in the world at large. God's purpose with creation. So, to know the truth, we mentioned this on Saturday, you don't need to be like this gentleman here trying to get into the school for the gifted. You don't need to be like me, It couldn't open the door. You don't need to be particularly intelligent. You don't need to have particular gifts, a high IQ. But you do need these qualities here because you're going to face in life challenges and you're going to have to make choices and those choices are hard. And it's your faith and your understanding that's going to allow you, give you the wisdom to make those right choices So to know the truth, you do need honesty, you need discernment, you need faith, you need courage to make these tough decisions. And no matter who you are, you will face these decisions. So what is the truth? Let's jump straight into it. We commonly say the truth and not truth as a way to distinguish divinely revealed truth from common everyday truth and truthfulness you see truth can be facts it could be a mathematical certainty like two plus two equals four could be something to do with the angles on a triangle adding up to a certain number could have to do with honesty and integrity philosophers in ancient times and even in modern times argue and write extensively about the truth if you read Plato's writing on Socrates, Socrates writes and speaks quite a lot about truth and he seeks for it. But he comes to this conclusion that truth is relative. It depends where you live. depends on your education. depends the year or epoch that you might have grown up in. Up in. Truth to those philosophers is relative. And he gives the example of an Athenian woman who a woman who lived in Athens and one who lived in Sparta and one who lived in a different place, in their different environments, they had different ideas of how their women would be treated. And he concluded, therefore, that truth was relative to a circumstance. But when we talk about truth, brothers and sisters, the truth, we're not referring to a relative concept in the philosophical sense, but rather to the fixed certainties the fixed certainties that God has revealed to us in the word. That's very important to understand that. So the truth isn't about what they call cognitive dissonance, that is, holding contrary opinions in your mind where you believe this but you actually live differently or you think differently. It's about absolute truth. And I think That's the great heritage that we as a community have received. We mustn't confuse truth with human traditions and customs. This would be a critical but a very common mistake. Our object will be to consider how the truth allows us to understand and to know God. And what this knowledge that God has revealed to us is designed to do. That's what we want to accomplish in the course of this studies. God wants his truth to be in us. He wants it to be in our hearts, in our minds. He wants it to dominate us and to guide us in life. Because God's truth alone sanctifies. And this truth of God comes from God's revelation, which is God's word. When we speak of revelation, of course, we're not talking about the apocalypse We're talking about the word of God. Psalm 51. Someone mentioned to me last night. Don't forget to mention Psalm 51. Here it is. God desires truth in the inward parts. And he says, John, Jesus says that God's word in a prayer to the father. He says, thy word is truth. And he goes on to say that these disciples who were hearing Jesus speaking were sanctified through that truth. And they were believing on Christ. And some would, like us, would believe on the truth of Christ through their word as they were used as agents. And the house of God, of which we, of course, claim to be, the house of God must be founded upon God's truth alone. As Paul says in first Timothy chapter three, verse fifteen, but if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the ecclesia of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So there's us, brothers and sisters, striving, we hope we all have one mind with this, we're striving for this. Both the pillar which holds up the roof. And the structure and the ground, which is the foundation upon which these pillars stand, these things are of God and of truth. So, with those words in in our minds and our thoughts, let's ask this question. Okay, and I like this question because it usually upsets a few people and keeps you awake. Are we, as a community, liberal? Or conservative? You know, are we on the left? Are we on the right? I look around and I I meet Christadelphians all over the place. Some are liberal, some are conservative. And we would probably say we're about here, right? We're a little bit to the right. We're not over there. There are obviously brethren who are further to the right and there's those who are very liberal. But this is my question. Is it the right question? Is it the right way of looking at it? Are we really justified in even thinking that way? If as a community of believers, we truly believe that we have faith in God's truth, then the truth alone must be our pillar and ground. We've just discussed that. We should therefore vigorously challenge this form of Thinking this form of reasoning because it's relativistic and it's humanistic. We ought to be neither liberal nor conservative. Don't allow the label to characterize you. We should be of the truth. You know, Jesus' critics accused him of being too liberal. He ate and drank with sinners, tax collectors, people of questionable background while Jesus says of them that they were conserving, which is what conservatism means, conserving human customs while denying gods. Therefore, if we are of the truth, we should steer clear of this type of reasoning or thinking. It's not helpful, and it's not of God. So when we discuss divine matters, we should not be, must not allow ourselves or our beliefs to be boxed in by human thinking, measurements, criteria. (coughs) This form of reasoning and measurement is of the world, and we ought to be sometimes liberal and progressive. And sometimes, in some situations, we need to be conservative and cautious. There isn't one rule that fits all circumstances. And in that we face a challenge, because some of us are naturally more progressive, and some of us are naturally more conservative. But we should be of the truth. That should be the definitive answer for the position we take on many things. Using the concept of relativism, that is that there is no absolute truth that things are relative. If you go through the book of Job, you'll find that that's a dangerous path. Those friends of Job's who came to him to give him comfort really didn't turn out to be comforters. They didn't grasp the greatness of God and the things that he'd revealed. Here's another question. Are we Christadelphians a sect or a cult? I know we don't often discuss these things. They get touched on occasionally. I wasn't brought up a Christadelphian and I had to address this issue myself many, many years ago because I wanted to make sure this group of people that I was associating with Weren't all brainwashed followers of some cultic figure, some human leader, and there's been numerous of them in, over the course of history. Are we a sect? Are we the holders of a heresy? Mainstream churches call us a sect, and we ought really not to be too offended by this charge. The disciples in the first century were called a sect. Or a heresy, and there's the references on the screen there. The idea means to, it carries the idea of making a choice or choosing the idea of a division, and we certainly are that. Are we members of a cult? No, we are not. Now, I don't know about you, but if you get two Christadelphians in a room, you'll probably get three opinions, and if I look around here and there's a couple of hundred people here, there's probably 400 opinions here. We don't follow one cult leader. Cults are about singular authority, they're about singular power and decision-making, of giving away your free choice, your ability to think, to a fallible person who plays the part of God. And cults are run by sociopathic people who steal your free will, and are thereby empowered to decide your life for you. We are certainly not members of a cult. Cult leaders inevitably self-destruct. Who are we? We're really, I guess if there is a classification, we're biblical Unitarians. That means that what we stand for requires a total re-evaluation of our worldview, a change in how we think and act, but we found those things upon what God has revealed in the Bible, in the scriptures. So, certainly a high commitment group is a valid enough description. So we are Unitarians, we don't believe in that God is a Trinity, we believe God is a unity. And there are other groups of course who are biblical Unitarians, not all who hold the same beliefs as us, but in a general classification I guess we are scriptural or biblical Unitarians. Are we a Protestant denomination? Now, I came from that sort of background. My wife certainly did. Are we Protestants? Well, I've done some study on this subject because it's a pretty important question to deal with. Sometimes we feel comfortable being associated with a larger group, you know, the Catholics, the Orthodox and the Protestants, and we fit somehow into that group. I don't believe we are Protestants and I don't think we should really identify with that movement. And I'll show you why. There's two reasons. Many historians contend that in the main, the Protestant movement was not purely a religious movement, but it was rather part of a political one. The Reformation was primarily, and if you read your history books you'll find this, was about dominion, power and wealth. Those things that always motivate people. Religion was the excuse rather than the initial cause, used by certain rulers to cast off allegiance to foreign rule. <coughs> historical, the historical context of the Reformation in the 16th century, which is, of course, when the Reformation began, the medieval period was at an end. The Renaissance, which means the idea of rebirth, had now emerged there was an um, intellectual enlightenment. Learning had now gone out of the monasteries and come into the greater society. There was political... These forces were at, bay, at, at um, play. There was political nationalism. It was on the rise. There was commercialism, capitalism. And very importantly, and this is the part we don't often know when we, unless you really look at the history books... Local kings were consolidating their personal power over their nobles to the exclusion of foreign influence. Very important to understand that. So in the main areas where in the 16th century Reformation took hold, areas like Germany, Switzerland, Holland and England, these places saw the more powerful kings and nobles for political reasons rebel against the religious and political hegemony or power base or concentration of power of the Catholic Universal Church. And there was a really a good reason why they did that. There was widespread religious abuses, excesses and corruption were everywhere, and they were used really as an excuse to throw off allegiance to the corrupt Catholic papacy. And to end the various taxes and tithes, now this is the big one, it's always about money, They were to end the taxes and tithes that were negatively affecting many nations. For example, the lands of the churches were extensive. The Catholic Church in England, for example, owned through its monasteries and churches 30% of the physical land of England. That's a lot. And of course, it was all tax exempt. The church was not paying any tax on it. And all the landed gentry, the nobles and the kings, well, their collections were shrinking. And it's interesting that the American Revolution was brought about for the same reason, about taxation. After separation from Rome, the local kings saw an enormous financial gain in acquiring the church lands, which had, become a, which had been, of course, exempt from taxes And they subsequently acquired these lands in the name of the crown, you get the idea of crown land, and distributed portions of the land to their closest supporters, nobles, etc., thus consolidating their position with a power base that would have the same mind as them, financially committed to the same goals, as well as making return to the Mother Catholic Church impossible. Many of the nobility of England to this day are heirs of the gift, this gift of the crown. There's a famous um, television program at the moment on called Downton Abbey. It's about a famous or a, a mythical, of course, um, um, family of nobility who live in what used to be an abbey. That's the idea. Okay, These things were taken from the Catholic Church. But there is a religious context in the Reformation as well. In the 15th and 16th century, the nascent and the new age of learning was well established. The educated yearn for the days of Socrates, Plato and Aristotle and what they call the Classics period. And the, for the stability and the reign of the old Caesars as well as the freedom and the order and prosperity that they thought it was, would bring. You see, the Dark Ages and the medieval period was very static. Everything was set, the routines were set, and you could not progress in society. It was very stifling. <coughs> the reformers themselves, and this is the interesting part, these, the leaders of the Re- Reformation looked back beyond the medieval period and its restrictive beliefs, superstitious practice, and brutal ways back to the early age of the church. But unfortunately, they only looked back to the time, the pre- and post-Nicene days, the 3rd to the 5th century, which was a corrupted era in which it was full of false teachings. It was full of a strange mixture of philosophy and religion. And most importantly, what became a close relationship between the church and the state. This stands very starkly in what the Reformers endeavoured to do. They didn't look back to the times of the Apostles or what's called in the Scriptures the Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship, they look back to this period. The Reformers look to the famous church father. This guy called, they call him St. Augustine of Hippo. Very clever fellow. I've read his um, autobiography. Very full of himself, but very, um, very intelligent fellow. He's a teacher of philosophy who became converted to Christianity. And other similar theologians and doctors of the church to support their justification for beliefs and actions. You see, Augustine taught about original sin, salvation, grace, the Trinity, society, the idea of a just war. And these things were accepted by the reformers. And these remain core teachings of the main Protestant churches. In the main, the Protestant churches remained state-funded. They were sponsored and supported by the state. They only ab- abandoned certain excessive beliefs and practices such as papal supremacy, image worship, priestly celibacy, transubstantiation, purgatory and other, a few other minor concepts. They retained the main doctrines and many of the practices of Mother Church. They were not able to cast off the brutality of their age also with the sectarian violence and aggressive politics making their overall movement really a failure. And this failure gave birth to what we understand today as being the intellectual enlightenment of rationalism which is the other force that works in the world. They persecuted with vigour those who didn't agree with them. You know, rather than being men of of virtue, they were brutes. They were entrenched in pagan superstition. Here's some examples. The brutal execution of a, a man called Michael Servetus. Now, he was a very famous doctor who discovered, one of the men who discovered how the blood flows through the body. He was also a great Bible student. Now, he wrote a treatise on who Jesus was, that Jesus wasn't God, that Jesus was a man, the son of God raised up much the same as our own belief. Now he was in Catholic Europe and he fled from there because the Catholics are after him and he goes up to where John Calvin lived that great they called Calvin the Protestant Pope. They went up he went up there and thought he would find some protection. And soon as Calvin got hold of him, he had the civil government, at his bidding, have this man burnt to death slowly, not quickly, there was no quick execution, but slowly. And he slew also many others who didn't agree with his position. There was also the brutal and wholesale destruction of the Anabaptists and the Peasants' Revolt in Germany at Luther's bidding. Luther hated civil disobedience. He was a man of the status quo, as long as he had control, of course, what that status quo was, and he put down many thousands of Anabaptists. And there's also a revival of superstition. The um, Reformation brought about this widespread. Revival of superstition and brought about the ter- torture and burning of witches. There was a period there, it went for a hundred years or so, where young girls to old women were accused of being witches and tortured and slain brutally. They reckon there was around 30,000 women destroyed. Some towns lost all their women. The reformers were vigorous men like, and I liken him to Jehu, Jehu in the Old Testament scriptures, who brought down Jezebel's idolatry, but he returned to the compromised ways and worship of Jeroboam, rather than to God's way, which of course in this context would be apostles' fellowship and doctrine. Where are we, brothers and sisters? We are closer to some of the Anabaptists' position. We believe that belief is a personal matter. It's of the conscience. And it can't be subject to the controls of man-made institutions or civil governments. We also hold that all the teachings and beliefs must be founded on scripture. Not on human reasoning. Not on philosophy. Not on accepted theology. Consensus opinion or tradition. That's what we stand for as a community. So we have a different worldview. This causes us to view the world differently. In the main area, this is one of the main areas that separates us from the mainstream churches and has a huge impact upon how we interact with the world. So here's my question. Is the kingdom of God, the Christian church, Christendom, which is what Christendom means, the kingdom of Christ, which is about the now, or is the kingdom of God the restored kingdom of Israel and all that's going to grow from that, and it relates to the future. You see, we believe this over here. It's future. And therefore, we don't get involved in politics And in all those things, and in wars, and all those things that the Reformation, the Reformed churches get involved in, as do all the mainstream churches, we stand apart because our hope is for the future. Another area where we differ is our understanding of sacrifice. Now this is very important and it's a little bit controversial. And it sounds perhaps a little bit confronting, but in the main... Mainstream churches believe and teach Jesus died as a form or a type of human sacrifice. I don't know if you've given this much thought, but it stands in all their language and in all their understanding of the Bible. That is that one died in place of or as a substitute for others to precate God's wrath. The God of the Old Testament was angry. And he needed blood to placate his wrath. That all our sins and the sins of the whole world were somehow transferred onto Jesus. He taking the blame for them. And by that means he fully paid the price and thereby took away our sins. At the heart of this doctrine is the doctrine that proclaims that Jesus is God. And that God is that God in an expression of his unlimited love became a man that he might die for and in place of sinners. Now this is at the heart of all their theology and it's the reason this substitutionary understanding of the atonement it colours all their beliefs and their theology and it's the reason why they so aggressively defend the doctrine of the trinity. Because in their view a mere man does not have enough moral value or virtue to balance out the weight of the world's sins. It has to be the death of God. God comes and becomes a man that he might bear the burden of all sins as an expression of God's unlimited love to, as it were, balance the scales. Now, this understanding is one of the main reasons why they believe that having faith in Jesus is the only thing that matters. We've got to be careful when we hear and sometimes adopt some of their ideas that we don't get ensnared with and start on a path that leads to this sort of conclusion. We believe that the scriptural teaching on sacrifice is more complex and instructive than is generally understood. We also believe that fairly early on, a foreign way of Understanding of of human sacrifice was adopted by corrupted Christianity. This belief was itself built on a changed view of the nature and person of Jesus Christ. This view of things changed the purpose of sacrifice and the overall scheme of things. We believe it subtly misrepresents the way of God. This is where we want to get to. We are taught in the word that sacrifice was meant to express death of self. You find it in Romans 12. Where we present ourselves a living sacrifice. You find it in the Old Testament where the offerer was to lay their hands upon the head of the offering and it was to be slain and they were to feel the life of that animal go out. It was to represent their life. Also note, of course, that human sacrifice was forbidden in the Old Testament. Scriptural sacrifices clearly que- quite unlike the foreign or pagan concept of sacrifice, that is, paying a price through an offering so that the offerer could go free. It's not quite like that. In this regard, we believe that the scriptures teach that Jesus' sacrifice was not substitutionary, but representative. We clearly recognize that sacrifice of self is not sufficient. You can't simply sacrifice yourself and say, well, there you go, God, I've given you what you want. It's not really sufficient. The scriptures scriptures teach us that God raised up one, Jesus, in the same flesh as us, yet one who never sinned, to be a perfect sacrifice for sin. That in his death he condemns sin in the flesh, and his nature is called. The devil, for that reason, which is the source and cause of all sin. And by being in him, and this is the key, this is why baptism is so important, and identifying with Christ is so important, that by being in him, we can both share in his condemnation of sin, and in his victory over sin and death. Now, God's work in Christ defies human expectations and will, and their wisdom. It's so different that Paul says we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. The Gentiles, the Greeks particularly, believed in the wonder of the human body and mind so they would train the muscles and they would train the brain so that they could make a better man. That's not what it's about, brothers and sisters. Crucifixion is about putting... To death, the man, not enhancing him, not making him stronger or better or faster. So what is the path to believing? Now, I came in from outside the truth, as I said a number of times, and I know a number of you have, so I've tried to map it out, okay? Now, just bear with me. We as human beings are self-aware. That means we see or have the ability to see outside of ourselves. We can perceive things differently to the other animals Animals can only be driven by instincts. We can use a mind to think outside ourselves, make decisions about the future, about all sorts of things that they can't. We're confronted by incredible design and complexity. The world we live in is wonderful and it's incredibly complex. So how do we understand it? How do we explain it? There is only chance. There is no God. Or there is a mind at work in these things. You see, that's the first choice we face. And then you get this one down here. There's an, import, there's, there's an impersonal God. Well, God exists, but we have no idea who he is. That's called deism and theism. That's what Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and um, the great philosophers of the um, Renaissance, ben like Gibbon and um, um, Voltaire, um, the great philosophers, that's what they were. They were deists. They believed there was a God, but there was no way you could work out what it was all about. You just had to use your intelligence, your wisdom. That's why they liked the classics, period. And there's the idea of multiple gods. Polytheism. Hinduism is one example. And the others, of course, are those which we find in the Old Testament. You know, Baal and Ashtaroth and the God of the Zidonians and all these different concepts of God. Then the, there's an incorrect view of God. There's a singular God, but... And I call this one here Allah or Islam. They believe there's a singular God at work, but it's Allah. And then there's a corrupted view of God. They believe God is a triune God. He's three persons in one substance, whatever that means. And then there's the truth, brothers and sisters, that there is one God. And this God has revealed himself. In the Old Testament, he's called Yahweh. In the New Testament, he's called the Father. Now, note the importance here of Revelation. You see, if God has not revealed himself, how would you decide what the truth was? How would you know what to choose? How would you know where truth lay? And it comes down this way. God has revealed himself. And this is where the word fits in. Right here. It directs us. God has spoken. Now, Man is without excuse because God's signature is in his creation. It witnesses to the works of his hands. This witness alerts us to the fact of an overall powerful wise creator God, but tells us nothing of his character, his purpose or his will. God spoke of his works to Job and later again to Israel. You see it in the Psalms as well. Paul informs us and uses this form of, it's called the theological argument. He uses this form of reasoning in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Again, in Acts 17, when he comes to Athens, he speaks and warns of man's responsibility to God. And what is it? That man should seek out and find God and know his ways. Therefore, man is without excuse. His ignorance and his rebellion brings him under general condemnation and judgment. And so he dies, just like the beast of the field. God has spoken and revealed his ways. But man, this seems to prompt in man a rebellious and perverse response. We are constantly warned of false teachers in the scriptures and false prophets, both Old and New Testament. Why is this warning given? Because false teachers misrepresent God. They misrepresent the things of God and turn people astray from ever finding God. God's very angry with false teachers. Paul says that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Very clearly, we believe, brothers and sisters, in what it's called plenary or full inspiration of the scriptures. That this book, is composed of these sixty six sections, represents one revelation of God concerning his will and purpose. Faith is believing God's revelation, not simply believing God exists, but believing what he says and believing his witness. And faith, as it says in Romans ten seventeen, comes from hearing the word of God. And so the gospel is preached and people hear and believe. I don't have to speed up, I see. And it's by the foolishness of preaching that many come to know God. Yet God remains in control of the process as these references here will testify to. So our pioneer brethren, brothers and sisters, what really have they taught us? Here's where I wake you all up. What does our heat our heritage teaches does it teach us what to believe or does it teach us how to think and reason you know it's quite a choice and it's quite a challenge one's law and one's spirit i believe it's the one on the right that's what we receive from brethren thomas roberts and those who went before and if you open elvis israel you'll find in these references here where brother thomas says if you find something I'm writing that's not true, he says, throw it out. Set your face like an adamant against it, he says, because he stands for truth and truth comes from God. Very important that we discern that and we apply it. So what, is the, what do the Christadelphians really stand for? What should we stand for? The truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. When I was a kid growing up watching television programs, he said this law court program and people used to stand up and swear this oath. They usually went on to lie, of course. But this is what we should be standing for. The truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Look closely at our core beliefs as outlined in our BASF 30 affirmations. And they're all based upon scriptural statements and teachings. It's all about that, brothers and sisters. And when you come to our statement of faith, the foundation is about what? The foundation is about the Bible. That's how it starts. It's our sole authority. When we argue, brothers and sisters, we argue from the Bible. There's no substitute for this foundation. There can be no other authority. Therefore, we reason from the scriptures, believing they communicate to us the mind, the purpose and the will of God. We strive to lay our foundations, all our core beliefs in plain scriptural statements and teachings. We assume nothing. We don't rely upon traditions or any other authority, but upon scriptural teachings. And this is what differentiates us from the mainstream churches, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox and many others as well. We recognise no traditional interpretations or dogmas or oral laws that are equal or of high value to the word of God. This is our heritage that makes our community and understanding of the teachings of God unique in the world. But it only remains so as long as we remain and adhere to that approach. What are these core teachings? Now we spoke about these I believe there's only five core teachings in the Bible enough to remember on one hand these are what they are and I'll show you how they are in the statement of faith tomorrow we believe in revelation, God's word wherein is revealed his will, his ways, purpose, his character and faith comes from hearing that word the next and these aren't necessarily in order of priority but there's one God who is the Father, who has unlimited power and wisdom. He's the creator and sustainer of all. He's motivated by love and he shows his love and what he does. We believe that mankind have rebelled about man, that mankind has rebelled against God. They've ignored his and gone their own way. And for this reason, God has cursed them. We believe that Jesus is God's only begotten son, a man raised up by God to save us from sin and death. Our inevitable and just end, and he is the expression of God's love and wisdom. We believe in God's purpose to fill the earth with people to bring about His bring His kingdom to the earth to, to, and His dominion to fill the earth with people who think like Him, and we believe that these principles, when believed, are manifested. They are simply what the truth's about. Now I don't know about your ecclesia, but we do seminars at our where we teach and we preach on in a very informal way to um, visitors. Now, when we teach those, I do a number of those myself, I usually preach the truth this way. And I used to draw this little circle on the wall to people when they came in. I said, well, this is what we're going to do. This is what we believe the Bible teaches. This is your life. And God's endeavouring to sow a seed. It's the word of God. And it's like a seed that comes into your heart, right in the midst of you, and it teaches you about God about you, about Jesus, and about God's purpose. And He wants you to radiate that in your way, in the way you live. Now, I used this for quite some time until one day I did this. I turned it sideways. And what did I get? Know you not that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? What is that? It's the camp of Israel. Now, I don't know whether this is coincidence, and I'm just making this up, but I look at the symbols here. God, the eagle, man, the man, Jesus, the lion, purpose, the ox, which is service. There's God manifest in ancient Israel. There's God wishing to be in you, to dwell in you, that you might manifest and live his truth. Is the truth really that simple? The core truths of God are really that simple, brothers and sisters. Unfortunately, in our teaching and preaching efforts, we often complicate the truth by not emphasising these core concepts and ideas which can give such meaning and hope to a blinded humanity. Perhaps we need to review the way we do it. And I know that uh, Brother Michael Wollstonecross is going to speak upon the gospel as new the, in the, in the book of Acts, how the apostles preached it, and I think we have a similar mind, even though we didn't even talk about it till the other night, about these things. It's the churches who have the complicated theology. They're the one who've got the complicated theology and philosophy. They're the one who got three people become one person. God becomes a man. God dies. All those concepts about souls and people on clouds and all that sort of stuff. They've got the complicated theology, not us. The truth is really simple. The challenge we face, brothers and sisters, is overcoming ingrained and indoctrinated prejudices and beliefs coupled with widespread ignorance in what God has revealed. Many of these prejudices have become widely propagated as Bible beliefs so that people are confused and deceived. Is it really that simple? If it is, why do mainstream churches oppose us? Why do they call us names? Because we claim and proclaim that the mainstream churches have a corrupted view of almost every one of these five core beliefs. We further claim that their beliefs in many other areas are a mixture of truth and error. That is a blending of scriptural truth and superstition and philosophical speculation because we believe that holding a corrupted view of these things and these core teachings of the scripture we're not prepared to say that their position is acceptable with God, it's truthful or it can save or it doesn't really matter and taking this stand we therefore challenge their authority just as Jesus challenged his contemporaries authority and their position as true churches of God and therefore their relationship with God. That's why they don't like us. Do we believe that doctrinal purity saves us? Is our religion one of intellectual strivings or salvation by works? No, brothers and sisters, no on every count. We believe that only faith saves. We're going to talk about faith, and there's two aspects I want to talk about as we go through our studies. There's one we talk about a lot, and there's one we don't talk about a lot. Only faith saves, and faith is a very personal matter it's not a matter not a matter of natural right or inheritance we believe that faith is based upon understanding and believing what god has revealed to us in his word his promises and not believe not simply believing in god's existence in other words we believe in god and what he has said and we further believe that faith must bear fruit and be shown In works of faith, not works of law, there's quite a difference. It must be shown in how we live. So let's just sum up what we've talked about. The truth is of God and from God. And without God revealing his will and his way and his purpose, we would be groping in darkness. We would have no confidence in the things that we believe. The truth, therefore, refers to the things that God has revealed to us through his chosen spokesman. And we'll talk about that tomorrow and in the coming days. Our common and our community's first and only objective should be to align ourselves with this purpose of God as it's revealed in the scriptures. And every time this concept has been lost or forgotten, the truth has been lost. Let us not, brothers and sisters, fall into the same way of error which others have fallen into, and lose this heritage. It is very precious, and it's very valuable. Every time it's been lost, before the truth has been lost. If we are to be of the truth, we need to both know and trust God and what he has said and revealed to us, and we need to show that in our actions. We'll continue in the next classes, of course, taking this subject now. We've laid this platform significantly deeper